You haven't memorized it? God, what, what kind of guest are you? <laughs> up to like two in the morning. I slept with it under my pillow. Oh. Like, was... <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you if I want right. Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing be. Alright, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle. We're a part of the following films network. And this week, we're taking a look at Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And the theme we're looking at is power struggles in relationships. And to do that, I have a brand new guest, a guest that I first heard on... Uh, friend of the show and past guest Sean from No Totally. Uh, this is uh, Miranda Sajak, who is uh, kind of out there and talking about this movie she's making, No Trace, which I've actually gone on her on her funding page and donated, and you sh- totally should too. So welcome to the show, Miranda. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Yeah, of course. So why don't you tell people about this project? Cool. Um, so... I think, you know, we share a lot of Twitter followers, so I'm sure many of them are going to be listening. Um, But for new people, um, I am a filmmaker in L.A., and um, I, you know, I'm a pretty big advocate for, like, women and minorities, like, in front of and behind the camera. I think it's super important. But I'm also, like, a massive action film fan. Like, that's sort of something that's always driven me. It's something that I always, like, I'm the person who's, like, first in line for, like, San Andreas when it comes out. Like, I'm definitely just, like, that person. Um, It doesn't matter whether the action film is, like, amazing in a franchise, like Fast and Furious, or, like, you know, some, like, little, you know, foreign movie or whatever. Like, I'm just, I'm always interested in watching action movies. So I decided... Um, last year that I really wanted to do an action movie because I hadn't directed one before. I've directed other films that have gone on to festivals. And I wrote a film called No Trace, um, as you mentioned, and it follows an undercover cop who robs a bank for the mob only to find herself on the run from her own former police partners. So it's got a lot of twists and turns. Um, I'm sort of like pitching it as a little bit like The Departed meets like District B-13 with, like, a little bit of Jessica Jones thrown in there. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's got, like, some of that sort of, like, dark neo-noir kind of stuff, but it's also definitely, um, you know, an action, like, project. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of been fundraising for it for a few months now, and um, we actually got really exciting news. Um, My location manager, this is, like, the first time I'm talking about it, I think, other than on my site, but my location manager um, worked on, like, Supergirl, and she's on, uh, I think it's a new Fox show called Pitch about baseball, Um, and she's sort of been in the industry for, like, 15 years. She's union. She's amazing, and she basically told me the other day, like, you know, if you can raise a certain amount, you can shoot on a back lot at a studio, so... Major Studio Backlot may be open to us. So right now we're kind of in that push for that stretch goal to go shoot on a Studio Backlot. Um, I think we're something around like $5,000 away from that right now, like in that ballpark. So that's kind of our goal right now. And um, our website is gofundme.com slash Miranda Directs. So 
Uh, you can find us there and you can find me on Twitter and everything. And, you know, I'm always kind of up to talk about it and talk about filmmaking. So that's sort of what's going on with it right now. Nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously we'll put that on the show notes that that website so you can go and donate as well. I think it's I think it's really important because, you know, especially on Twitter, not that it's not productive on Twitter, but there's sometimes a lot of talk about women both behind the camera and on camera and not a lot gets actually done there's like there's a lot of kind of yes. this talking with other people who share your same views and we all go yeah we should do something and here's your opportunity like you can actually put your hard-earned money money towards making that happen and that's yeah. that's i think that's the really cool thing about about these kind of gofundme type projects is you can actually be a part of something that that you want to make change kind of for for the the world of media yeah and i've um you know, we've all kind of been following hashtags like Oscar So White, which I think like had a pretty big impact um, on the uh, Academy and then, um, you know, whitewashed out and like all of these other things too uh, for people of color. And like, this is something that's been close to my heart too. Um, you know, I'm a member of the LGBT community. So like really anything that's promoting minorities in front of the camera or behind the camera, are a big deal to me. Right. Um, so that was something that I really took into consideration when writing this. So um, all three of my lead cast members are people of color, which is really exciting to me too, um, because that's also something you don't see. So, um, you know, I think the most known of them that I've you know, been, I've been able to announce so far um, is uh, James Kyson from Heroes. He played Ondo. Um, he's a friend of mine and he's an incredible actor. Um, so that's sort of been exciting for me too, is to be able to really like kind of put my money where my mouth is. Like you said, like on Twitter, people talk a lot, um, but there isn't always a lot of action behind that. So I really like being able to make this part of the action that I'm doing sort of, you know, to change the, don at least challenge the dominant paradigm, if not change it, you know? Right. And I love that what you're directing is an action film. I think people have yeah. certain uh, misconceptions about like not only a woman director, but an LGBT oh. director where it's like, yeah. oh, you know, it's, you know, it'll be a costume drama or it'll yeah. be all about, oh, you know, right. women's rights or LGBT rights. And it sometimes it's nice to be like, no, uh, we contain multitudes, you know, like yeah. we can do more than just that. Exactly. And I mean, I love, you know, I always look at like Catherine Bigelow, of course, oh, yeah. like, you know, um, and Ava DuVernay. And like, there are just so many like incredible directors out there right now. Um, Rachel Talele, Alexi Alexander, you know, um, they're just, there's so many, you know, like some of my favorite movies that are action oriented were directed by women. And so, um, you know, it's something that I definitely look to and I'm inspired by, but then of course, you know, the numbers are just still dismal. So oh, yeah. Uh, you know, as excited as I am for like Wonder Woman and like Patty Jenkins, like behind the camera, like she's amazing. Um, you know, it's just it's a drop in the ocean. And I think that that's right. something that, you know, it's really, um, really needs to change. But then, like you said, like, I think it's something that, um, you know, I like to challenge those expectations, because I think that there is an expectation when you have a woman director, um, that it'll be like a Nancy Myers or a Nora Ephron. And right. I love them. I love their movies. I am completely unashamed to say that I watch romantic comedies too and I enjoy right. them but um you know it's not where my heart is so right. I really and that's not to... all there is you know and it's not all there is you know um it, it, it isn't all there is it's not everything that's out there so there are so many genres and you know you see there's no problem with like men being behind the camera like Richard Curtis like doing four weddings and a funeral of actually you know there are mm -hmm. so many men who direct romantic comedies and nobody like blinks um so right. I think that it's really 
time to kind of like swap that off and say, okay, now women can also do action and superhero movies and horror and like all these other things. So uh, yeah, it's something I'm really excited to kind of be joining the the throngs of that are kind of up and coming. Nice. All right. Uh, so let's get to the actual episode. Um, so we've talked about the, the movie that we're going to talk about in the theme. Do you have a couple movie recommendations connected to that for us? I, I do. Um, so the first one is connected to uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And that for me is District B-13. Um, I won't totally spoil it, uh, but it takes place in France. And it's basically like the film that brought parkour like into the public eye in a big way. Um, You know, I think later they based Brick Mansions on it. Um, I don't think that movie was as good as the original, but the original, very worth checking out. Um, And it's, again, kind of a, uh, you know, man versus society, man versus government kind of thing, Um, like man versus organization. Like there's a lot of different kind of conflicts like within that um, that I think are reflected in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, too. Nice. Um, so that's my first one, and I love that movie. Um, and then my next one um, is related to the theme of power struggles and relationships. So uh, if you are following me on Twitter, if you do follow me on Twitter, um, you'll know that I am like a huge League of Their Own fan. So I'm actually throwing that out there. It's a very different film from Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Nice. And it's a film that people look at and they think, this is a movie about women in baseball and it is, but it's also a movie that really deals closely about power struggles and relationships. And those power struggles might be between the two sisters at the core of it, or, um, you know, Kit who's sort of like the more rambunctious sister and like the other women on her team, or it might be between, um, David Strathairn's character trying to keep the league alive and, uh, you know, kind of struggling Mm -hmm. with that. Um, and you know, uh, Gary Marshall's character who kind of wants to shut it down. So, you know, there's a lot of different kind of power struggles ongoing throughout the course of the film. Um, And I think that it's something that gets overlooked because the film is as, you know, most people really love it, but it's really just like the women in baseball movie. And it kind of like those deeper themes that are sort of separate from that, um, I think can get lost in the conversation. So that was one that I thought of that really kind of deals with that in a big way. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are two uh, great recommendations. I actually still have to see that first one. Like it's been on my list to watch forever. (laughs) Uh, Like, I think I actually first became aware of it, sadly, when Brick Mansions came out. Yeah. Uh, Didn't see it, but heard enough bad things about it to stay away from it. Yeah. Um, But the League of Their Own one really excites me because this is like kind of the whole idea behind the podcast is that you can take any movie and look at it deeper. You know, like, yes, it is a movie about women in baseball, and that was an important story to tell. But it is also about this relationship between these sisters and these different people within the movie. So that's that's an awesome, awesome recommendation. All right. uh, So we'll take a little break. I will talk about uh, those power struggles in relationships, and then we'll bring Miranda back to talk about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. All right, so we're going to talk about power struggles in relationships. I don't think there's a lot of material that's just on that in particular, but I think we can find enough that will connect with the movie. So there's this first article from Psychology Today about the roots of power struggles in relationships. And it starts with a quote from Margaret Thatcher that says, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. So sometimes you will see this in relationships. People who feel powerless 
will act in a demanding, overwhelming, power-driven way in order to compensate for this feeling of powerlessness that they have. As a result, they tend to underestimate their ability to affect other people and will behave in extreme ways that are really aggressive. And this actually has way more negative impact on their partners and their relationships than they had ever intended. And this struggle usually starts, like most things, in childhood. In a very old article for a journal called Child Development, Martin Hoffman stated that powerful parents can create feelings of powerlessness in their children. Kids can also feel powerless when they are not understood, supported, or protected by the adults in their lives, which results in a really chaotic environment for them. Hoffman in this article defined power as the potential for compelling, unmotivated behavior in another person. He extends the definition further to encompass emotion as well. From childhood all the way through adulthood, your sense of power is partly shaped by recognizing that you can alter the mood of those around you by understanding that you have the ability to determine outcomes, whether they are physical or emotional. But if you acknowledge, understand, and respect the power you've grown into, you can clearly recognize the extent to which you impact your relationship and other people in the world. Otherwise, you tend to do this, what we talked about earlier, this overcompensation for your childhood powerlessness with intense, exaggerated, and even punitive actions towards your partner. You can end up creating unrealistic expectations or irrational demands on the relationship. To prove your power, a what he termed as the tyrannical adult, may end up overpowering the relationship's emotional energy. Now, in relationships, if you can imagine the relationship like, like a seesaw, if both partners understand their power or are empowered, the seesaw will stay level and balanced. But if one of the individuals in the relationship brings in this feeling of powerlessness, they may try to compensate by weighing themselves down on the seesaw, shifting on their weight, and kind of destabilizing the other partner on the other side. In the very best situations, the partner will be confused by this, but go along with, with these demonstrations of power. But the longer you go without recognizing that you do have this power and you continue to be what this article calls an emotional dictator, the more likely your partner will retreat. In many cases, this manifestation of power will be enough to drive your partner away. So if you acknowledge that by choosing to be in a relationship with you, your partner has demonstrated that you do have power and do have meaning, and then you can have meaning to your partner, you can affect your partner's emotions for better or worse. And as an adult, you have the ability to alter a person's mood and perpetuate how the household interacts. The attitude, outlook, and sensibilities of the relationship are influenced and impacted by you. It doesn't mean you have all the control, but you do have some of it. So the more that you work towards acknowledging that power, the more you can be calm and centered in the relationship. If you have a more accurate appraisal of your own power, you can use it productively. Acknowledging your power as an adult can help you balance your relationship. So like that quote at the beginning from Margaret Thatcher, if you truly appreciate your own power, you actually don't need to demonstrate it. Now, of course, there's another side of this too, like power and control in abusive relationships. So this is the way that abusive people will exert physical, sexual, or other forms of abuse to gain and maintain control over a victim. The kind of colloquial way to talk about this is the term control freak, but I don't think that gives it enough seriousness. Um, but they are often perfectionists that defend themselves against their own inner problems in the belief that they are not in total control. So if they don't want to expose themselves to this pain, they will inflict it on other people. So they manipulate and pressure others to change so as to avoid having to change themselves. And they use power over others to escape this, this kind of inner emptiness. 
So there was a psychologist named Breaker who identified a bunch of following ways that manipulators will control their victims. One is positive reinforcement, praise, charm, uh, superficial sympathy, apologies, money, approval, gifts, forced facial expressions like laughter or smiling and recognizing them in public. They also use negative reinforcement, which is removing a person from a negative situation as a reward. Like, you won't have to do this if you allow me to do this to you. Also, intermittent or partial reinforcement. So the idea of intermittent reinforcement, uh, it's if you want to look at it in the most simple ways, it's the way a slot machine works where there's no pattern to it. It just kind of happens randomly. So if you imagine this in a personal relationship, it can create this climate of fear and doubt. You never know when you're going to be uh, reinforced or when you're not. Also punishment, like nagging, yelling, uh, silent treatment, intimidation, swearing, emotional blackmail, guilt trips, crying, playing the victim. And then finally, uh, something called traumatic one-trial learning, like verbal abuse, explosive anger, intimidating behavior to establish dominance in a situation. Another psychologist, Susan Forward, talked a lot about emotional blackmail, which is basically a way to control people in relationships uh, using fear, obligation, and guilt as the transactional dynamics at play. So there's four of these kind of blackmail types. There's the punisher's threat, like, and all these examples use eat the food or blank. Um, so punisher's threat is eat the food I cooked for you or I'll hurt you. The self-punisher's threat, eat the food I cooked for you or I'll hurt myself. The sufferer's threat, eat the food I cooked for you. I was saving it for myself. I wonder what will happen now. The tantalizer's threat, eat the food I cooked for you and you just may get a really yummy dessert. So there's lots of different levels here and they're all emotionally blackmailing. It doesn't mean they're all the same, but they all are working in a, in, with a similar dynamic. Now, in intimate relationships, it's it's similar, but it gets more specific because we we kind of know a lot more about this because we've done a lot more studies. So something called traumatic bonding happens. So first, the potential abuser will gain their trust, will gain the person's trust. So they're attentive, loving, and charming. And then they move to a phase called over-involvement, where the abuser becomes overly involved in the daily life and use of time for that person. And then we go to petty rules and jealousy. So rules begin to be inserted to begin control of the relationship. And jealousy is considered by the abuser to be an act of love. And then we move to the fourth and fifth stages, which which is manipulation, power, and control, where the victim is blamed for the abuser's behavior and becomes coerced and manipulated. And then finally, traumatic bonding, where ongoing cycles of abuse will lead to this traumatic bond where you feel like you can't leave the person because it is a cycle. They do go back to being attentive, loving, and charming in this kind of apology mode. So, And then that cycle starts over and goes over and over and over again. And there's a bunch of different ways uh, that abuse can happen. You can have intimidation. You can have economic abuse. So if those rules include, you know, I see your checking account or I have control of the money, that can become a really big problem. Emotional abuse like name calling, uh, putting the person down or humiliating them. Isolation, not letting them see their friends or their family. Uh, minimizing, denying, and blaming. So even if the person is abusing that person, they will place the responsibility on the victim. Also, people will use children and pets to exert control. There, I actually used to work at a battered women's shelter, and one of the things that was kind of most galling to me and terrifying to me is that were many times that uh, abusers would threaten to hurt or kill children or pets in order to keep the person in the house. Um, and then there's, of course, the, the physical violence that goes along with it, too. So 
you know, there's lots of different levels here, as I mentioned, and and all of them are about exerting control. But it's important to note that if we listen to that first part of this section, that control and exerting control is a part of normal relationships, too. This is just way off the deep end. All right. So the article we're looking at is actually an older article from 1986, and it's entitled Sex Power and Influence Tactics in Intimate Relationships from Howard Blumstein and Schwartz. So what they wanted to do was examine the influence of sex, sexual orientation, structural power, and interpersonal dependence on the use of what's called influence tactics in 235 same-sex and cross-sex intimate relationships. When we talk about influence tactics, they found six dimensions. So you have manipulation, supplication, bullying, autocracy, disengagement, and bargaining. So they were looking for those patterns in all of these relationships, and they wanted to see if there's any difference in them in types of relationships. And a lot of what they found made a lot of sense. So first, if a person in a relationship had a position of weakness, or they felt disempowered, they would increase the use of supplication and manipulation, which they termed as weak strategies, because it's things you can do even when you're not in power. But they also found that positions of strength in these relationships increase the likelihood of bullying and the use of autocratic tactics when these are both strong strategies. Now, the other two, bargaining and disengagement, are much more complex and vary across couple types. When you boil it all down, the article elaborated on the social processes through which sources of power will shape the tactics of control in relationships to pursue desired goals within those relationships. So in this study, which is a really good thing, they had the perceptions of both partners because the perceptions of a single partner can be really limited. So they wanted to capture the entire picture of the dynamics of the relationship as a whole. So we talked about the fact that you know, weak and strong, that will change the tactics that are used, but it doesn't change the fact that tactics are used. So whether you have power or not doesn't change whether you use influence and whether you struggle for power in a relationship. And they also found that there was literally no difference between same-sex and cross-sex couples. So these things happen in all relationships. And I think even though technically uh, the two characters that we're going to talk about a lot in in the film are not an intimate couple. They kind of – they basically are, and you can see them try to wield these power tactics during the film, and I think we'll find that one character is much more successful at it. Um, but, of course, we'll talk about that uh, with director Miranda Sajak uh, when we come back. So that's it for the psychological section. So we'll bring Miranda in now to talk about the movie. All right, uh, so we're back to talk about the movie, uh, t- back to talk about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And I like to ask my guests what their history with the movie was. Like, obviously not a super long history. It did just come out last year. This is probably one of the more recent films we've done on the podcast. Uh, but what is your history with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation? Um. So, okay, I have like kind of an interesting history, I think, huh. and probably an unusual one. Um. And this is something that I'm like not at all ashamed of because, you know, people will always say like, oh, you haven't seen XYZ. This is the first Mission Impossible movie I've seen. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think that's sort of interesting um, just in that there's only so many hours in the day. There's, you know, (laughs) we all have like some of those movies like in the canon that we've just missed for whatever reason. The list of shame. We've all got them for sure. That sort of list of shame. Um, I'm not really ashamed of it just because it's like. 
you know, I just, I, it just never, I never got around to it. I mean, that's literally it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not like generally a huge spy movie fan. Like I love action, but like the whole like, you know, secret government agency thing. Like I, I think I've only seen one James Bond as well. So like, that's just not a genre that I've like right. delved into super deeply. So it's something that for me, um, I got a screener during Oscar season last year. And that's when, you know, it was one of those like, all right, you know, I'm kind of trying to watch everything because I do try and watch like the especially the big movies as Oscar season rolls around. And I sat down to watch it like not super huge expectations, but just kind of going in completely fresh. Like I didn't have the background of what the other movies were or what the setup for all of this was. Um, So I kind of went in cold. I kind of knew a little bit about it because you can't really live in our culture and not know about Mission Impossible. (laughs) Um, But I didn't know much. So I went in really cold, not knowing anything. And I just, I loved it. Like I just really was super entertained and it was kind of like a nice refresher. I mean, I think, you know, I love Oscar season and I love Oscar movies, but um, I will say like they do tend to be lengthy and they do tend to be dramas. So, you know, when you're going through a pile and it's like drama after drama, after <laughs> drama like you finally get to like an action thriller. Oh, thank with God. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> set pieces and like, you know, you can turn off your brain for a minute and just like really enjoy it. Like that was fun for me. Nice. Yeah. I mean, my history with it uh, is definitely not similar. Like I'd seen all of them. I was my dad was a big fan of the television show. So I was kind of inundated with this and James Bond since you bring that up. Yeah. Uh, So I've watched all those, too, for better or worse. Uh, And, you know, I've always liked the Mission Impossible movies, but they're not, you know, they're not mind blowing. They're not going to change your life. They're not going to make you think too much. Uh, but I, so I walked into this kind of thinking like, oh, I'll just be entertained. It'll be fine. It'll be kind of a middle of the road movie, whatever, who yeah. cares? And I was like shocked by how good this was. Yeah. Like this ended up like, you know, I've watched a lot of movies cause now I have an excuse. I'm like, oh, it's for the podcast, <laughs> which is really just an excuse for me to go to the movies <laughs> when I should be doing my studies. Uh, but, <laughs> but so I see a lot of movies and this ended up in my top 20 and I really liked it. Um, oh, and a really big reason is because for once there is actually a female character that you care about, uh, in this action movie. And that's actually a big, like when I invite guests on, there's usually a reason it's not just like, oh, I like you. Here's a random movie that I, that I paired you with. And that was the reason that I contacted you for this movie in particular, because you are a woman, you're a woman director, you're a woman director who's doing an action movie. I thought like, oh, this is like the perfect the perfect storm. Like, let's let's make this work. So I I was really stunned at how much I enjoyed it. Like, expected to just kind of like it, but it really kind of shot to the top of my list really quickly. And I think visually, it was one of the most impressive films of the last year. Like, I was, it was really well crafted and really well staged. Yeah, I think it's like probably in my top ten for last year, both like visually and just as a movie. Um, you know, and granted, I didn't see everything last year, but I right, just. Right. I really enjoyed it. Like, just like you said, like it was a hugely enjoyable film. Um, Absolutely. Right. Uh, So let's jump into the direction. So it's directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who's really more well known for his screenplays. Uh, He, of course, wrote the screenplay for The Usual Suspects. That was like his kind of big blast, his big intro into the world. So what did you think of his direction here? Um, I thought it was really good and I thought it was really interesting. Um, You know, I know we're kind of going to break down a lot of the like, you know, specific shots and scenes kind of as we go. Um, But I thought it was just really, 
it was really clean directing. Like it was like, you know, the shots that were supposed to be there were there. And, you know, he really, um, and I mean, some of this goes to the editor as well, but you know, he really knew how to knit a scene together, um, you know, in a nice way. Um, there were some surprises, which I loved. Um, you know, I think, I think the acting and the stunt sequences were really well crafted as well. Um, which, you know, probably some of that also goes to the stunt coordinator, but, um, you know, I really, I just thought it was like a nicely put together film. It's something that I talk about a little bit, but not heavily. Um, but it's always in like my bios is that like, I'm a huge fan of, um, like nineties crime thrillers. Um, like this is sort of a tangent, but it actually connects, Um, But I'm a huge fan of like 90s crime thrillers like The Net and Pelican Brief and A Few Good Men and, you know, all of these sort of like things that came out of that era. Um, And I think of this as kind of fitting into a lot of the boxes that those check, which is basically like really good production value, a good story, entertaining characters, and you can just get lost in it for a couple hours. And it's not going to be life changing. You're not going to like say, oh, I just, you know, realized what that like traumatic event meant to me when I was five years old, like you're not going to feel that. <laughs> right. But you're going to have this moment of like really high entertainment value. And I feel like it really fits that mold of just like, you know, whether it is like, you know, the net or the Pelican brief or whatever, like it just, it fits within the, that realm of just highly entertaining, great production value. Like yeah. I think he really hit it out of the park. Yeah, I totally agree. There was like kind of just going through some of the shots that I really liked. Like in the very beginning, you know, we have, which I like in the very beginning, we have our main character kind of thrown for a loop. Like usually at the starts of these kind of movies, like there's a lot of successes. But in this, he's essentially, you know, locked in a room and knocked out. Uh, From the very beginning. And there's a shot of him as the gas fills the room. And you all you see is Tom Cruise's kind of disembodied hand pounding on the glass. And it's such a powerful image. And I love that it gets repeated at the end of the film with our villain villain. trapped in a similar circumstance. I thought that was just really well done and just kind of a beautiful image with all that kind of billowing smoke. I agree. Um, And, you know, for me to kind of right after that, when... um, Tom Cruise, like, he wakes up and he's, like, you know, strapped to the pole or whatever Mm -hmm. in that, like, underground kind of lair. Um, And, you know, I thought that was a really great shot. And it's, like, a small shot, but it's, like, it's kind of done, um, you know, from, like, above into the side a little bit. So, like, you think that he's maybe lying down or he's upside down and, like, you don't really know. And, like, it's just one of these really smart uses of framing where it's so close that you're – kind of just, um, you know, from his like waist up and you sort of don't really know where he is or what's going on, the geography of the space. Right. Um, and neither that, does he, which is yeah, kind of cool. Yeah. And that's something that like I always look at as like, how can you, um, you know, really bring the audience into the mind of the character? And I think that that's mm. a really great shot that really does that because he doesn't right. know what's happened to him. He's not really sure where he is or what's going on. Um, and neither are we. And like, I think that that's really just a great use because so many scenes, uh, will open wide and then get, get tighter. And, you know, right. that's one way to do it. Uh, but I love when a scene opens tight and then gets wider because it really adds to disorientation for the audience. Yeah. And I think I, I can't get through this section on direction without talking about the, the opera scene. I mean, to me, yeah. probably my favorite, one of, if not my favorite, one of my favorite sequences of all of last year. Yeah. Like it just like every single shot, like you could almost pause your Blu-ray player at any point, you know, yeah. find a way to print it out and hang it on your wall. Like just yeah. absolutely gorgeous. And, yeah. you know, to have like this kind of sexy kind of femme fatale, but without 
as an audience feel like we're ogling her yes. in this sequence is really impressive and not easy to do. And no. just every moment in that sequence is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I think there are set pieces in general, um, whether it is that sort of like little fight in the lair or the opera scene or the underwater scene, like they're all just like really gorgeous set pieces. And, you know, I think Macquarie like does like a fantastic job. And I think the opera scene is really like the pinnacle of it. You know, it's like you have so many people, you know, with guns trying to shoot, you know, like (laughs) so many different, like everybody's (laughs) just kind of like firing at each other and like going all off and like, you know, the sort of like catwalks above the stage or, you know, going up and down and like, just like that whole fight sequence is just beautifully choreographed. And then you just, you still, it's a great moment because I think, um, I forget when it happens in the film, maybe it's around an hour in, but maybe it's a little later, but it's sort of, um, you still don't really know who she is. And I kind of love that because, you know, it would be really easy for them in that um, introductory fight where we first meet her to have her say, like, blah, 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 this is my name, I'm with right. blah, blah, blah. But she doesn't do that. So we don't know who she is. And, like, Tom Cruise doesn't know who she is. And we don't know who she is. And, like, nobody has any clue what this woman's identity is or what her motives are. And so it just heightens the tension so much in that scene because we don't know. Like, is she trying to kill somebody? Is she going to kill him? Like, what is right. she going to do? You know, and... It's great. Like, it's just a great, great moment. Yeah. And you brought up the the catwalk sequence. I think that's yeah. the most impressive thing about this kind of extended sequence at the opera, that there are all these variables in play, all these yeah. things going on, but you never feel like you don't know where people are. Like, yes. Macquarie has a really good sense of kind of scale and and where we are in this sequence. And it, it really comes through in the fight choreography on that catwalk because there is no room up there to to really do these gigantic action sequences so everything is really tight and you really feel that and you really feel scared for our main character because the person he's fighting looks like he's about six foot seven and about (laughs) 280 pounds which is a great little comedic moment too when he stands up to his full height and you kind of realize oh i probably shouldn't have jumped down here (laughs) that was not my best call so to like to keep that realistic looking enough was a really impressive feat from the director, the fight choreographer, the editor, everyone involved. Totally. And I think it's also like really just a testament to, um, you know, just like the quality of the fights in this particular film. Um, You know, I think that that's something that's really like, it's sometimes overlooked in action films or you sometimes Mm -hmm. just sort of like let it, you know, be whatever it is. And you're like, okay, well, as long as it's decent, that's fine. But I just felt like the fights in this film were like really great. It seemed like the, um, stunt coordinator like gave everybody an individual style of fighting um you know uh the ilsa character you know tends to like jump on people's necks before she like <laughs> elbows them you know like she uses a lot of elbows she's a lot of my tie like you know and a lot of sort of like dance like choreography um and i think that that's really smart because you really want each individual character to have their own style of fighting because they would Uh, like everybody's going to fight differently and I just I love that and I love the hand-to-hand combat and we have so much of that in this film so many great hand-to-hand combat sequences Uh, and I think that that's something that not necessarily is lost but um, you know we're very much in a world of gunfights and we have been for a while and so you know when you get these really great knife fights or these really great like hand-to-hand combat sequences which this film has a couple of um, it's just really exciting for me as a viewer because I really like the the sort of threat increase of 
you being right next to this person and like literally having to do what you can with your hands, you know? And I think that that's fantastic. Yeah. And I think it's important not only to have different fight styles because visually you kind of, it helps you kind of tell everybody apart, but also with our, with our Rebecca Ferguson character, it helps the action seem more realistic because she is smaller than just about everyone she fights. So she's not just going to stand toe to toe and trade jabs. Like that's not really going to end well for her. So the fact that her fighting style fits with her body type and who she is really helps the movie as a whole. Totally. And it helps her character. Like it's, it says who she is as a character in a really interesting way. Like, um, you know, I mean, there's a moment that I think, um, I think they mention it once and then we see it once, but, um, you know, this was like another thing and maybe this gets into the writing too, but, um, you know, her name is Ilsa Faust and like, obviously Ilsa is like a Casablanca reference mm-hmm. and then Faust is sort of like that whole deal with the devil. Um, right. you know, so it's really interesting, like how much depth they kind of gave to that with even just the fight choreography. Like you, she's, she's kind of a trickster character. You don't know whether she's on your side or against you at any given time. And it's great that she kind of embodies that in those fight sequences. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So like just overall as a director, like super impressed uh, with Macquarie, it makes me wonder how much input he had with Brian Singer when they were making Usual Suspects, because I mean, this is a, this was, I think his third movie. Like yeah. he did Way of the Gun and he did Jack Reacher and then this. Yeah. And it's like this doesn't feel like the work of someone who has done Not that other. little. Yeah, but, totally. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, it's so clean. It's so polished, mm-hmm. but without feeling overproduced. And that's a really yeah. thin line. Like sometimes movies can get so polished that you're like, OK, this isn't even real anymore. I can't engage with it because it's yeah. just like a, you know, and sometimes it'll happen with CGI, but it'll happen just with action movies in general where you're just like, OK, I'm not scared for our characters, but there's yeah, a lot of good character work here. Yeah. There is. And I think, um, you know, I mean, a lot of that goes to the writing, which he, I think, co-wrote as well. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. uh, it goes to the writing and it goes to the crew. I mean, you know, if you have a really great cinematographer that just can right. elevate what you're doing and what your abilities are and a really great stunt coordinator who can do that, like, amazing opening sequence on the plane and, right. you know, just all of that stuff, just having that um, just really it just elevates everything and i think that he really just worked with a phenomenal team too so you know definitely credit to them as well because you know it's all when it's that seamless and when it's that beautiful like it definitely took all hands on deck so i really great point yeah Yeah. uh so jumping to the acting i want to start with rebecca ferguson because i feel like in and this is what really surprised me when i saw the movie like uh tom cruise isn't our main character here no at all. It's really her story. And you don't really figure that out till maybe you're about an hour and 15 minutes in and you <laughs> yeah. get a little bit more of her backstory because you're right. As a character, she is a mystery. Yeah. I, and I, I think that was one of the things I was most impressed with as I watched the movie the first time is usually I'm kind of like, OK, I think I see where this is going. And there's a lot of choice points in this movie for her. Where I was like, could go either way. I have yeah. no idea. I'm terrified. Like <laughs> Even to the end. Yeah. Like, to the last sort of showdown. Like, you just don't know. You're like, well, he might not make it out. She might not make it out. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. And I think that she is really the revelation here. Um, you yeah. know, everybody else, like, I, I do love all the other characters and we'll get to them. Um, but... I think she was really the standout. And, you know, as you said, um, you know, she really is a constant surprise. You don't know which way she's going to go. You don't know what she's thinking at any given moment, um, which just elevates the tension and it makes the script stronger and it makes the show or the movie stronger. Um, And, you know, one thing that's really exciting for me watching it um, 
and this goes to the writing and the direction as well, but essentially like just how many times like she saves him and how many times, you know, she's like, like the first moment when they kind of like run away at the opera together or whatever, um, he kind of asks her like, you know, can you keep keep up? And she's like, you know, don't worry about it. Like, don't wait for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's great. Like, that's a great moment. Like, you know, and I thought about it at first and I was like, Oh, like, would they have had this line if it was a guy? And I was like, well, I think they would have because he's this like, you know, top notch spy, you know, like he's, ultimately like trained like super hard every day of his life to be able to like run faster than just about anything or anyone so um you know of course they would have had that if it was somebody who he wasn't sure what their situation was or if they were like a newbie to this world or whatever um and I love that she's just sort of like yeah yes I can keep up you know like I absolutely can keep up with you and you see that like there's repeated scenes where you know they're in a chase and she's ahead of him and that happens right. a lot, you know, and whether it's on a motorcycle or on foot. And I love that. And I don't, you know, I mean, I want to give credit to, you know, both Cruz and McQuarrie for being okay with that. Because I think, um, you know, even a few years ago, you might not have seen that happen. And, you know, had this A-list star be comfortable with that and had this, you know, big director, which Macquarie is now, you know, be okay with that. And I think it really just is credit to them and it is credit to her to um, to be able to pull that off and really hold her own because Tom Cruise is a megastar. And, you know, anytime you can kind of like go toe to toe with that kind of level of, you know, superstar around the world, like that's really a huge thing. So I think it was fantastic. I think she did a great job. Yeah, I also think like, I, I mean, I agree with everything you said and bringing up the point of like, would he have said that to a man? I mean, I think we only have to look at how he treats Simon Pegg's character, yes. like how protective and granted different realms, right? Like yeah. Simon Pegg's is kind of the techies, not the action guy. Uh, yeah. But he does. I, I, I think I think you're right. I think he would have treated a man in a similar way. Uh, I also think she puts in a fantastic performance and you don't realize how good it is until you have the sequence where you find out who she really is. Because it's one thing to play kind of, you know, badass female character TM, you know, who just succeeds at everything. But to also throw in this sequence where in some way she's kind of helpless in this situation, but to still come off as a complete and strong character. And I think that's where she really shines when we about halfway through, we find out who she really is and what goes into everything she's doing. Yeah. And just the fact that we know that her back is kind of constantly against the wall Mm -hmm. and yet she's still bringing it like she's still, you know, finding ways to be like he's always kind of talking about how like the bad guy is like one step ahead. But I feel like she's kind of also in that position where she's always like one step ahead of him, too. Yeah. And I think that that's really interesting that like both like, you know, the evil villain and, you know, this woman that we've just met who we, you know, kind of later find out the history of are consistently like ahead of him. And that really, you know, it obviously like throws Tom Cruise off a lot and he's sort of like always kind of struggling to catch up. But <laughs> I, I love that. Like, I think that was a really smart choice with her character. And another thing that I wanted to mention that I kind of just realized I rewatched it last night because um, I hadn't really remembered how it kind of like ended for them. Um but this is like the kind of film and the kind of character where I really do think like, you know, even going back to what I said before, like a couple years ago, it would have ended with them either like sleeping together or making out. Yep. And it didn't. And I love that. I just I loved that as a viewer. I was like, we don't need that. And, yeah. you know, it didn't like there wasn't even like a cheek kiss, like any of that. Like it was like, OK, like, you know, 
as like and and there's moments where they hint at potential romance like you know right. there's definitely she asked him to run away with her and like you know all that stuff like you have those moments um but it's so subtly done that it doesn't feel over the top and for me like as a woman watching it it felt a lot more realistic because right. i find that like you know if I meet somebody, even if I undergo like some high stress situation with them, like I'm not jumping into bed with that person like an hour after meeting them. And I don't care how good looking they are. And I don't care like any of that stuff, how smart they are, how, you know, rich they are, like any of that, like literally none of that matters (laughs) to me. Like I need to get to know the person. And so I really loved that they didn't just like play the easy card of like, okay, well, you know, whatever, like, yes, we have the bikini scene, whatever, you know, you need that. But it's such a small moment in the film that that didn't really like rub me wrong at all. It was mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, it's obligatory and you have it. <laughs> but they didn't go that way with so many other beats that could have been obligatory, you know, like the make out at the end or whatever. Like right. they just have it. We didn't need it. And I think also you'd have to you'd have to be not paying attention to not realize that there is romantic tension there. Yes. And you don't need that scene. Like there are there are important things going on in this yeah. movie. Like you don't have time. Like, well, yeah, I know the, the world's ending and everyone wants to kill us, but let's make out. Like that's Yeah, totally. We, that's for later. Like it's, Yeah, like I lo- and I think that that's a really good point too is that like in a lot of these movies, you know, not to like denigrate anything in particular, but like in a lot of these movies like the world is literally about to end and they're like stopping to like jump into bed, you know, and like I've always that kind of stopped the action. Yeah. You know, like I always felt like that's sort of like a hold up on things. And like, you know, I get that it's sort of like a holdover from like the fifties and like whatever, you know, it's fine. It's what it is. And we're gonna see it for the next twenty, fifty, hundred years, whatever. Like it'll still be in certain films. That's okay, you know, but I definitely always felt as an audience member, like, are you, did you remember that, like, there's a bomb about to go off and, like, the right. world is about to end or no? You know? Yeah, exactly. No, totally agree. Um, so let's actually talk about the other actors. Uh, it, yeah. So this does, isn't just the Rebecca Ferguson podcast, which it totally could be. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, Tom Cruise uh, as Ethan Hunt, who I feel like is fine here. Like, I don't think he does anything fantastic, but he also... He's he's a professional movie star. He's probably the last one we have left. Like, it's just, he knows what he's doing. He loves to do his own stunts. It's all very convincing. Yeah. He's funny enough. He's tough enough. He's all those things. But, like, nothing about his performance here, like, stands out a lot to me in either a good or a bad way. What about you? Um, You know, I feel kind of the same. Like, you know, I think... um. You know, I lean a little bit towards the good, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is more um, just like how satisfied I was with the movie overall, right. uh, more than necessarily like him specifically doing anything like revolutionary as an actor, um, aside right. from like that big stunt at the beginning. Right. Um, and then, you know, I think also just like kind of what I mentioned before, like just kind of a feeling that he's like maybe being a little generous as a lead, which I appreciate. It's um, rare. It's rare. It is like, it's, it's something that, you know, I think we should be pointing out when it happens. And I think we should be celebrating that because it's just not something that we see often enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, other than those kind of beats, like, no, you know, like you say, like, I don't think he, like, he's not reinventing the wheel, you know, like he's, he's being himself and, and he's great at it. In a lot of ways, I feel like he's playing the stereotypical female role in, in an action film where in a lot of ways, like he's, 
he puts himself out there as eye candy. I mean, yeah. I think he has more skin showing than anyone else I in this so. film, you know, <laughs> and he's, you know, and he's kind of the special effect in this movie with all these with all these action sequences that he's willing to do. So it's interesting that it's kind of flipping the usual gaze that we have, especially in action movies. Yeah. And he's always getting himself into trouble and needing yeah. to be rescued. Oh, yeah. He's the damsel in distress he's in this movie. Big time. It's like, <laughs> like it's actually like almost comical, like how many times he needs to be saved. Like right. at a certain point. I mean, he, you had the very beginning. You have him, you yeah. know, almost dying when he drowns. I mean, it's yeah. just over and over, over again, and over and over again. Like, thank God know. for Ilsa. Like you'd be done, man. <laughs> Would be dead, like literally. <laughs> um, yeah, like and repeatedly, and you just. And that's, I think that's great. Like, I think it's really funny, like, how many times he, like, actually just needs to be rescued. Like, it's, right. it, it is almost funny, but it's, but it's, it's good. It's smart because, again, it just defies expectations. And, like, that's really what you want in any movie is, like, you really want to challenge ex- expectations so the audience doesn't go in knowing what's going to happen and doesn't come out feeling like they were one step ahead of the characters. And I think that that's one thing that this movie really does well. Yeah. And then we, of course, we have Simon Pegg as Benji, um, who I love in this movie. Like, I'll probably always have a soft spot for Simon Pegg. I just love the guy. Uh, But I think, like, he's great, of course, for comic relief. But I think in a lot of ways, he's also the heart of the film. Yeah. There's like a sequence of scenes, like in the very beginning, they have him take these lie detector tests, and he very convincingly says that Ethan Hunt is not my friend. And then, like, you know, 10 scenes later, when he's hooked up with Ethan Hunt again, talking about their friendship, like that was actually very moving, yeah. you know, within the realm of this action movie, which you usually don't get. And it's so good to see character actors take take their job seriously in a movie like this yeah. and not just be like, well, I'll just be funny and flippant and it's a paycheck, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I was really impressed with him. I, I totally agree. I think he he very much was the heart of the film. And he really did, like, humanize a lot of what was going on because right. it is really easy in an action film to just see the action and to just be like, this is big and it's explosive and, you know, kind of forget that it's also, like, about theoretically about people. And I think that he really, like, emphasizes that. And he, mm-hmm. he definitely does a great job. Like, I... You know, I both I both was laughing and, you know, was moved by his character. And I found him to be, you know, again, like it's just it's an all star cast. Um, oh, yeah. He was like top of his game. And I think he did a great job with it. Yeah. And then we have uh, Sean Harris, uh, who plays our villain, uh, Lane. And I think like he's fine here. He's but he's yeah. very much a stereotypical action movie villain. Like I wasn't terribly frightened by him like i yeah i yeah. guess his voice is creepy uh but he has that voice in everything that's just his voice like i just rewatched prometheus which he was also yeah. in and i was like oh it's that guy again and it's just you know it's your kind of standard take over the world kill a bunch of people plot so there's not a lot for him to do but i never felt truly intimidated or frightened of this character and if the only scene i did i think was more because of rebecca ferguson's performance uh, when she kind of goes back to him and tells him that, you know, she lost Hunt again uh, yeah. and he ends up like, you know, shooting his his henchman like that's a scary yeah. scene, but yeah. more because the camera focuses on her eyes yeah. and her reaction to it, which is a really smart decision. But yeah. Sean Harris here is fine. But like I would say if I have to pick a weak point of this movie, it's definitely Sean yeah. Harris. Yeah, I mean – it's not like it's not a, a Hans Gruber role. Like it's not you know. No, sad. Really, you There's only one of those. Sadly, movie villain is you know <laughs> right. you're not looking at it and you're saying you're not saying like you know I I want to see this villain go up against everybody I've ever seen in an action movie. Like it's not like <laughs> right. you don't you're like he's not 
he's smart and he's super calculating, but like so much of what he does is off screen. Like so much right. of like him being one step ahead of Tom Cruise or whatever, like so much of like his plots and his evil, you know, machinations are like kind of done without us seeing or hearing them. We just know that they happen because Tom Cruise tells us that they right. happen. Like we know he's a step ahead because everyone keeps yeah. telling us that, not because of yeah. anything not we're experiencing. Him, like actually being a step ahead. So, right. I mean, it's sort of like, um, so much of like his, his character is kind of like built up as this mythology that like all these other people are kind of talking about. And that's why we know that he's bad, but you know, otherwise it's like, you know, and we see him, you know, kill the woman at the beginning and like that, you know, that's sad, but, um, you know, it's not like we're, you know, super connected to her as a person either. So like, it's sort of, you know, she's, we're sad she got killed, but she's like sort of collateral damage. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's really a good point that he maybe is like the weakest, like when I think about this movie and what I take away from this movie, it it really is Rebecca Ferguson. Like it's the Rebecca Ferguson show, but like it really is, you know, that's what I take away from this movie. And, um, it could have been a movie where I took away some more from the villain and I didn't, and I don't know if that's, um, I don't think that's like a flaw in the series, obviously, like I haven't seen the rest of them, but, um, I think that they're from what I've heard, stronger villains in other of installments of the series. Well, um, anytime but, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman in your yeah. movie is one of the villains, you're going to do okay. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's sort of just, it's the nature of the business. Like, you know, every once in a while you get a really great one. Other times it's a little bit more cardboard cutout. And I think that in this particular case, it kind of veered a little bit towards the cardboard cutout model of the villain. Um, But, you know, I mean, again, like this is a movie about heroes and, you know, that's really like, and the trickster character. And like, that's really who we're following the most. And so I think that's okay. Like I was okay with the fact that I wasn't super blown away by him. I was like more invested other people yeah and the last people to talk about really briefly are um alec baldwin and jeremy renner and we definitely have to talk about jeremy renner because that's kind of the reason i end up picking this movie because poor jeremy renner like he was supposed to take over mission impossible he was supposed yeah. to take over born and now yeah. he's he's doing neither uh, like we have a new yeah. born movie coming out we have uh this mission impossible that came out and there's a, another one planned uh with both tom cruise and rebecca ferguson so jeremy renner seems to be the odd man out uh but i bring up these two together because pretty much every scene uh that either one of them is in the other one is in like they're they're not separate for very much and i actually really enjoyed their interactions there's a couple weak moments and it's more of writing of some dialogue that alec baldwin god love him has to spit out uh but i think the two of them and i wouldn't have picked these two to put together necessarily but i think the two of them have a really good rapport and you see it in that first sequence in kind of the court sequence uh, of them kind of playing off each other and kind of annoyed by each other, but also kind of entertained by one another. And it's a really good interaction. Yeah, I agree. Uh, You know, and I mean, kind of like I said before, I think it's, um, this goes to structure a little bit too, but this is like a really interesting film in that it really does not just in um, Rebecca Ferguson's character name um, reference Casablanca, but also in this sort of like odd couple relationship, which is a little bit like the Bogart relationship um, right. with um, what's his face, like in uh, in Casablanca, like at the end, you know, this is going to be a beginning of a beautiful friendship. And then you kind of have that beat at the end with um, Renner and Baldwin where they're like, you know, welcome to the IMF. Like, you know, it's right. sort of like that same beat. Um, they walk out on the same moment on the same, you know, emotional beat. Um, and I think that that's really an interesting element of their relationship too, that it really does, um, you know, kind of, it's a throwback. Like it's a kind of a nice, like odd couple throwback. And I love that. Like I love the interplay mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's smart and it's fun. It, you know, it adds a dynamic that is not seen in any of the other relationships in the film. So I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, totally agree. All right, so that is quite the cast, quite the all-star cast. So let's uh, let's jump into the writing. Uh, yeah. One of the first things I noticed is I, and I will always love this in every movie, when you have kind of high-tech spycraft that's mixed with low-tech. Like you have this scene in the beginning with the vinyl uh, where he has to like mm-hmm. pick out the right record. And I, and I like that kind of setup and it kind of, yeah. it, it harkens back to these kind of old spy TV shows. So you have this like tie to like the fifties and sixties, but it still feels like it's being made in like the 2010s, which, which I think is a really smart decision from a writing perspective. And who knows that might've been added like kind of uh, at the last minute with what they figured out they could do with special effects. But I really like that. And I really like the yeah. idea of this syndicate. I think it's, yeah. I think, but I think it's also the, a thing that if you, the more you learn about it, the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. So like, it's yeah. good as this overarching idea. Uh, so that exposition in the beginning is great uh, because now usually in Mission Impossible movies, you have this like this beginning exposition that you know you can trust. Like this yeah. is the mission. And all of a sudden now we can't trust anything. And I think that sets up kind of the theme of this movie so well that you never yeah. know who you can trust. Even this character that Rebecca Ferguson is playing, who you feel yeah. like we should care about. She saved his life at the beginning, but she keeps flipping back and forth just like yeah. this this message does. So I thought that was a great little intro to the film. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that the opening is like really fantastic. Um, you know, and like their record store, it's so smart. Um, and I, I definitely agree, like the mix of like the high tech and the low tech is really well executed there. Like I think that that moment is just it's it's really brilliant like you know you really do expect them to say like this is your mission blah 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 and then it's right. it's like oh like by the way you're you. screwed uh, like. <laughs> sorry we caught you like now you're really messed up and i think that that's really genius like i think that the whole setup is really really smart and you know i mean i think we've talked about a lot of the writing things with like structure and everything mm-hmm. um but i just i think that it's a really smartly executed film um you know it's like sort of right when you think that they've got something they don't and the rug keeps getting pulled out from under them and you know that's sort of like the nature of how these films are crafted but I think that they just did a really good job of it and uh you know again for me like I really and I don't know how much of this is like written in and how much of it isn't but like you know I love the opera sequence um I love how that's written um and I love really most of the fight sequences I think um they just they did a really good job of writing how those interactions um, you know, break up some of the more like talky elements and without, right. without feeling like it's unbalanced in one direction or another. Like I felt like I got enough information that I knew what was going on, but I also was really there for those set pieces and for those fights and for those chases. And it was really well-structured in terms of how much it balanced those things out so that I didn't feel like it was overly one or the other. Right. And earlier you talked about, like we both talked about kind of Tom Cruise being the damsel in distress and granted it's been a while since I watched uh, the other mission impossible movies, but I don't remember many circumstances where they kind of detail the plan and you can kind of see the fear on Ethan Hunt's face, like yeah. kind of like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Yeah. And it felt a little bit kind of like an in-joke, like Tom Cruise is getting older, Ethan Hunt is getting older, like, you want yes. me to hold my breath for how long? I'm not sure I could do that. And I love yeah. that they make that a running joke. And because they set that up, like, I remember being in the theater and as, you know, Tom Cruise is dying in the water, yeah, I was like, oh, well, maybe they're actually going to kill Ethan Hunt. And yeah. I never thought I would have that moment as as an audience member because like usually you're like oh well that's not gonna happen clearly it's gonna be fine it's mission impossible but because they made ilsa the main character you're like well maybe maybe this is how he goes out yeah who knows which is an impressive trick 
And I think so. And I think that that's really smartly done here. And I think that it's, um, you know, I mean, it, it does, you know, again, go back to the damsel in distress thing, but it's just, it's, it's so like, it's such a smart trope because like, even if you are kind of, you know, me coming to it without having seen all of these other films, I still do have that expectation. And I think it's partly because Tom Cruise is this megastar, but you still have that expectation that he's always going to be okay. And he's always going to come out on top and he's always going to save the day. And to not have that happen kind of repeatedly was just great. And, you know, when his friends are like, all right, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to like get the prime minister, like, okay. You know, and they're like, are you sure? Like, this is going to work out. And he's like, you know, he's sort of, there's moments where he doesn't answer the question. There's a lot of moments where, you know, the question is posed to him where it's like, are you sure this is going to happen? Or can you, you know, confirm that this is a thing, you know, and it starts in the beginning where, um, you know, I think the woman at the record store is like, you know, is it really you or whatever? And, you know, he doesn't answer the question. And it's sort of like a repeated trope that they kind of play with is like him not answering. Like, you know, is he sure? Like, that's a question that kind of gets asked throughout and not always answered. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, and we kind of mentioned already the only like the only real negative, like obviously the stuff with Lane, like it's a lot of exposition and it's that whole like, shouldn't we be showing, not telling? And I get that. But you also only have a set amount of time. You don't want to make maybe you do. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to sit and watch an action movie that's two hours and 45 minutes. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. come on, let's just get in, get out, have a good time. And I think they they definitely take that to heart. But you have that line by Alec Baldwin kind of talking about. Sir, I urge you not to leave this road. Excuse me. Please. Hunt is uniquely trained and highly motivated. A specialist without equal, immune to any countermeasures. There is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. He has most likely anticipated this very conversation and is waiting to strike in whatever direction we move. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny. And he has made you his mission. So over the top and so cheesy that I was expecting when the mask came off for it, for Tom Cruise to be underneath Alec Baldwin, not somebody else, because it was so ridiculous and so over the top. And, you know, for a movie that is so well crafted and so well written and so well done for the entire movie, like that still is a part that kind of sticks in my craw like that. And it's just so extended. And Alec Baldwin is kind of an over-the-top actor at this point in his career anyway. He plays a really good heavy. Um, So, like, don't give him lines like that because he's just going to tear into it. Like, (laughs) Yeah, you're going to – yeah, you're going to get a little bit of trouble there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. Like, I think, you know, um, some of that was a little bit, uh, you know, (laughs) there are those moments. There are a couple of those dialogue moments where you're like, really? All right, fine, whatever. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, you sort of, yeah, like, I guess you kind of take it and you're like, all right, well, that's just where we're at right now. Fine. You know, but, but yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I think that that moment was definitely a little like, okay, you know, I see coming like, and I think it only stands out because it's, it's probably the only moment like that in the film. It's like kind of, it's a good problem to have, right? It's the curse that like, you've made a film so good for the first hour and 48 minutes that there's this one little like, uh, and it really, really stands out. But I think overall, the writing is really good. It doesn't, I like that the movie doesn't take itself too seriously, but it also doesn't take itself as a joke either. It it really toes that that fuzzy line really, really well. So I think it's re- I mean, Macquarie really knows what he's doing. Like this is his wheelhouse. This is where his start was. So you would expect yeah. that the writing would be good. And it is. Uh, so production design, of course, there's a lot here because there are these set pieces that that we've talked about. And I I think like the only weak 
uh, production design stuff is there was some I remember seeing it in the theater and noticing the kind of the underwater sequences with the rotating arms uh-huh. was not the best rendered like the CGI was yeah. not quite there uh, yeah. but you know but that's that's definitely the weak point but I think every other set piece and even the way the underwater sequence was actually filmed with Tom Cruise in the water I think was really cool and I love the way they kind of focused on his face as he's drowning to yeah. make you realize how serious this is. So yeah. that stuff all really worked. It just felt like they got a little rushed at the end. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where, um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us kind of come from the sort of like practical 80s action film days where it's like, you know, pretty much everything was done on set. Um, there wasn't a whole lot in post except for maybe like some coloring or whatever, but like there wasn't a whole lot of CG. So like the, when it's not executed, um, sort of invisibly, we notice it a little bit more. So I definitely am with you on that where, you know, there were some moments where I was like, oh, okay, you know, like, got it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think otherwise, um, you know, I, I just, I think it was a really interesting um, product. Like, I mean, the opera scene, you know, it's like, you just go back to that as being yeah. the sort of core pinnacle of the film and what it could do. And, and it's just the production design and, you know, hiding guns and instruments and like all of that stuff is just like the props and everything there was just so well done. And I think that's just the sequence, like as much as I do love the underwater sequence, um, I think it's just the opera scene that sticks with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only all the scenes inside the opera, but the escape and yeah. there's there's that little comedic moment, too, where they've kind of leapt to safety and right after that the thing they were uh kind of balancing on breaks so you realize like we are in a dangerous situation no matter like yes it's mission impossible but it does not mean that this is going to going to go all as planned because you're with ethan hunt yeah agreed um yeah i think i think it's a that whole sequence i mean that's just that's a genius moment and i think that's maybe like one of the best sequences from a film last year for sure yeah i mean i think it's like a beautiful like 20 minute short film like just yeah, on its own. It's you, fantastic. You could just do that and it would be great. And I think one of the other things that they do really well there um, is sort of transitional elements. And I think that this is something that's pretty consistent throughout the film. I mean, a lot of the transitions are just like, now we're in a new city. Here's like our little Chiron that says where we are. But, um, you know, I think that that sequence of Simon Pegg, like, you know, kind of getting off the train and then getting the instructions and right. kind of walking up towards the opera and like all of that stuff. I thought that that was just transitioned really beautifully. And, um, you know, cause there's a lot of exposition going on there. There's a lot of like, you know, Hunt kind of feeding him information and he's kind of like walking through town to get to where he needs to get. Um, but I just think it's really the timing of that was just really well done. I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, there's more to say, I think, about production design, but I think it'll just fold into favorite scenes because a lot of my yeah. favorite scenes are these kind of big set pieces. Um, yeah. And the one we've talked about only minimally is this motorcycle chase, which is yeah. if the opera sequence wasn't in this, that might have been one of my favorite yeah. scenes of the year. Like, I just think it's fantastic. There's a lot going on. Uh, like, you know, it starts off, of course, with her on the motorcycle and kind of taking out uh, all the other guys on motorcycles, which is a really yeah. neat little little sequence. And then the uh, the car chase scene and the car crash. And then yeah. you have Tom Cruise finally getting on a motorcycle and trying to yeah. chase her down. And then it kind of plays into character as well, because she knows that that he kind of owes her and cares about her. Yeah. So that sequence where she stands out in the middle of the road is just a brilliant end to that because you do get into this point of a long chase sequence like this. You're like, 
this can only end badly. Like, where, yeah. how do we stop this? Like, how do we escape? Yeah. And that is such a neat little ploy to use. Yeah, I agree. Like, I thought that was just really brilliant. And it and it goes to our emotional connection to her at that point. Like, by that point in the right. film, like, we want her to be okay. So even when he's chasing her and he's, like, you know, theoretically our hero, we still want her to kind of be okay. So, like, yeah. we're sort of, like, rooting for both of them at the same time, which is a really interesting element in a chase sequence that I don't know that I've seen in too many chase sequences where you kind of are rooting for both like the chaser and the person you know who's being chased like I don't I don't think I've felt that in too many others so I kind of love that yeah and the other action sequence I really like which you mentioned earlier is that kind of one-on-one knife fight uh at the end I just thought it was like just beautifully choreographed like I think sometimes when things are well choreographed you lose the the threat like it's just it's too pretty you know, you have the kind of crouching tiger type syndrome yeah. where it's like it's like a ballet. It's like a dance. Yeah. But then this, this kind of was but you never felt safe. Like it yeah. always felt dangerous. And also, despite the kind of size disparity, you felt like, OK, we've proven through the rest of these two hours that Ilsa can handle herself. Yeah. So none of it comes off comical. And the ending of the fight is one of the coolest kind of kill scenes I've seen in a long time because I love, of course, she uses her kind of jumping on the guy's neck, which she's yeah. used previously. But I love that she doesn't like afterwards, like fall to her knees as he falls. She yeah. comes off standing and just kind of walks off in this kind of yeah. very badass kind of action film way. Totally. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, like I just, yeah. I really love the entire sequence. Yeah, it just shows, um, you know, like, how skilled she is as a fighter and how prepared she is and how practiced she is. And we get some of that even from the first scene where she's first, you know, fighting alongside Tom Cruise um, in that sort of like underground Mm -hmm. space. But um, you know, I I think that that's like a great culmination of it all. Like it's just, we use a lot of the moves that she's used before in new ways. And I just, I love that. I thought that was a fantastic moment. Um, And then another scene for me that I really loved, and this is really small. It's not like a great visual scene. Um, but, you know, we talked about it before, um, and that's sort of like the end beat between um, Ilsa and Ethan, where, you know, um, she kind of references again, like, you know, you'll know how to find me, like, you know, which she's kind of said before throughout, um, and so you kind of have that callback. And then um, I noticed when I was watching it again uh, last night that um, the score actually is mm-hmm. um, the opera again. So oh, it's a nice. callback to, you know, the greatest kind of set piece in the whole film um, and to kind of one of their big moments of tension and connection, um, like the first time they kind of run away together and, you know, all of that. And so I thought that that was just really beautiful. And um, it's it's subtle, but it's something that I really picked up on yesterday when I was watching it. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet that they kind of like did that throwback because, you know, the opera scene really is the moment where they first connect enough to like Mm -hmm. be working together Uh, So I kind of loved that. I thought that was great. Yeah. Uh, The other quiet scene I liked that you mentioned earlier was her kind of like we could run away together scene like that. We can be anyone. And I I like it because I think she knows the answer. Yeah. She knows what he's going to do. And you could see that kind of like she's saying it. But she doesn't for a second think he's going to walk away from this. But she almost like she feels like like she has to say this. So who are you working for now? Lane, Atlee, your government, my government, they're all the same. We only think we're fighting for the right side because that's what we choose to believe. So where's that leave us? 
The way I see it, you have three choices. One, you hand me and the disc over to the CIA. I'm proof the Syndicate exists. Lane becomes their problem, and your work is done. My thoughts exactly. Works for me. But you know they're not going to believe you. And you'll all be tried for treason. Lane goes free. I'm afraid she has a point. Two, you let me walk away to an uncertain fate. You used the disc as bait to trap Lane. But some part of you suspects you've met your match. And being a gambler, you'll probably end up handing Lane that disc whether you want to or not. That is entirely possible. And option three? Come away with me. Right now. Forget about Lane. There will always be another Lane. There will always be people like us to face him. We've done our part, and we've been cast aside. We can be anyone. We can do anything. It's only a matter of going. Like, we yeah. could just go. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to go after Lane we could just leave and you can kind of see it in her eyes. And it's another great Rebecca Ferguson moment that's not surrounded by action. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the ways in which this film kind of elevates itself from um, what we kind of see as the classical action film, mm-hmm. um, you know, thing where it's like a lot of um, a lot of side characters in action films and a lot of secondary characters tend to be less well developed than the hero um, because they're playing very specific roles and, you know, archetypes and whatnot. And so I think that that scene um, and the end scene and a few other scenes throughout really do give us uh, more. And I think that that's where, you know, the film really does shine emotionally. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right. Uh, so I think that's basically it for the the sections of the movie. What did you think of the theme and how it applied uh, to the characters in this film? Um, I thought it was really on point. Um, you know, I mean... I don't think that there's a character who isn't in some sort of a power struggle with another character at some point during the film. Um, you know, you have, um, you know, even Simon Pegg and, and uh, Tom Cruise, like, have that moment where, you know, Tom Cruise is like, you're going home. And he's like, no, I'm not, you know, and yeah. like, mm-hmm. that's like a really great character scene. Um, and it really speaks to the theme where it really is about, you know, these um, relationships and who's in charge and who isn't. And you know, for Tom Cruise to say, you know, okay, fine, you know, like, you're staying great, like, let's get started, you know, kind of thing. Like, it's like, all right, you know, like, that's, um, that's surprising. And I think that the writers really keep us on our toes uh, with who is in charge in any given moment, who is kind of the leader, and who is the follower, and who is determining the next step of this whole film. So I think that that's something that we see throughout. And whether it's, you know, Alec Baldwin and Jeremy Renner, or, um, Jeremy Renner and Tom Cruise or like, you know, any of them, they all have these moments of power struggle and you don't always know who's going to win. And I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think in a lot of ways, this is the most uh, in any of the Mission Impossible movies that we see Ethan Hunt's character grow and actually trust people more because he's not in control anymore, because the IMF kind of gets disbanded at the beginning of this film. Yeah. You know, we talked about Ilsa and her back being against the wall, and he's in a very similar situation. 
So like from the beginning, we have him kind of trying to make his own way. And that doesn't really change until Ilsa and then Benji come into the picture and he has to adjust and be like, okay, I have to figure out who I can trust. And I, I think that's why the most interesting relationship to me is obviously between Ilsa and Ethan, because it's this constant push and pull. It's this constant kind of saving each other, although I think she definitely does more of the saving than he does. There's definitely a back and forth here, and you're never sure really who's in charge because we don't we're not privy to all the information of what's going on with her, which is kind of what relationships are like, you yeah. know, like we don't get to know, we don't meet someone and get a video of their backstory. We don't get their origin story. Yeah. So it's like, you never really know. And there's a lot of push and pull. And I think the fact that even though there is no, you know, romantic displays, this is in a lot of ways, a romantic relationship yes. in this film. And you see that push and pull and you see them go back and forth and you see them, even when they betray each other, the other person gets it. They understand yeah. why they did what they did because they're yeah. in that same world. Because in another setting, in another movie, it'd be like, well, I'm not talking to her anymore because yeah. she just shocked me and almost killed me. So I don't yeah. need that in my life. But in this kind of world of spies and IMF, these things all make sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it really um, it speaks to the strength of the writing and the characters. And, you know, you know, just as we kind of mentioned at the beginning, like there's another Mission Impossible with both of them. And that's exciting. Yeah, know, it is. I think that there's a lot that is, um, you know, unknown still about who she is and her background and, uh, you know, how they interact and how they could interact in different ways. And I think that that just really speaks to, um, you know, how much like that theme of power struggles um, is still ongoing, uh, you know, because at the end, like they could ride off together into the sunset and they don't, you know, so right. there's, there's still that power struggle at the end, even of, you know, um, her kind of saying like, you know, you know how to find me, like, you know, it's like, all right, well, I guess he's, he's still kind of like thrown off a little bit there. Like mm -hmm. he's still kind of not totally in control, but he could be if he wanted to be. And so that's sort of like always that message that she kind of keeps saying, like, you know how to find me, you know how to find me. Like, you know, like he has those skills and those abilities to do that if he wants to, and he can choose to, or he can choose not to. So it's like kind of, he's always in that um, questing kind of mode. And so I, I loved how that kind of interacts with the whole idea of power struggles as well. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of just kind of last thoughts about the movie, like I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but I'm probably going to, is that this, this type of movie, this is why I go see movies. Um, yeah. I am known both in my house and on the internet as being sometimes overly critical and not be able to just turn my brain off and have a good time. Like, it's funny, let it go. Um, and people ask like, why do you even go see that movie? You know, you're not going to like it. Sometimes movies surprise you. And that is such an awesome experience. Like I walked into this kind of like, eh, it's not going to be that great. And I was completely wowed by this yeah. like to the point that i started like reading reviews as i was getting ready for this and anytime i saw a review that didn't that said something neg negative about rebecca ferguson i just closed the window like you're clearly <laughs> yeah. an idiot i don't need to listen yeah. to you anymore because you're wrong <laughs> or not even you're wrong but you're not coming from the same place i am yeah. so i'm not going to agree with your review so i'm just gonna yeah. leave it alone but i think it's so cool that you can walk into a movie thinking it's not going to be that great or even yeah. thinking it's going to be bad and you walk out like excited and pumped yeah. about seeing movies again so that's my feelings on, on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Do you have any last thoughts, anything that we like didn't include in our overall uh, review? I mean, I completely agree, first of all. You know, I mean, for me, it was, I was 
you know, I, I came at it from like the opposite end of things from you um, as far as like my experience with the films, but I also came at it from the expectation of just sort of, you know, maybe it's another popcorn movie. I don't know. Like, right. you know, I, I didn't come into it with high hopes, essentially. Like I sort of, it was one of those like, all right, well, I've just watched like four really dark dramas. And I, you know, <laughs> I need, I need like a palate cleanser, but I didn't come into it thinking that it was going to blow my mind or that I was going to leave it thinking like, this is amazing. And I had heard a little bit about how good Rebecca Ferguson was in it before I saw it. So like, mm -hmm. I knew that that was something kind of to look for, but I still, you know, the bar is kind of low um, in action movies for women these days still. So like, it wasn't like I was going in expecting to be as wowed as I was. So, you know, I was, I was definitely blown away. Um, I think like you said, like, this is the reason we go to movies. Um, it's definitely the reason I go to movies. And I think I have a similar reputation for, <laughs> you know, always coming down hard on things. And, you know, what it is, is, um, you know, I, I don't think either of us come down hard on things because we dislike films. You know, I think we, we probably both come down hard on things because we love films so much right. and because there's so much potential. And, you know, I can see a movie that was made for $2 million and be blown away. And I can see a movie that was made for $200 million and be blown away. So I know that, it's not about budget and it's not about, you know, how much time they had to make the movie. And it's not about any of those things. It's really just the confluence of the right cast and the right script and the right director and the right crew um, at the right time. And, you know, I think that this movie really proves that and it, it could have been another throwaway and it wasn't. And I think that that was really phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with this week, uh, which is Born. Uh, you know his name, I guess, is their, is their tagline. Uh, so this is another spy movie. So have you seen the other Bourne movies? Um, I have seen uh, the Matt Damon ones. <laughs> I haven't seen anything. Oh, yeah, that, I don't even know what you're talking about. That one doesn't uh, count. Yeah, are there yes. other <laughs> Nope, nope. Yeah, um, I remember kind of liking the first one. Yeah. The second one was okay, and the third one was really good. Uh, I re I really like the kind of last in the series, and it's yeah. it's interesting. Uh, Matt Damon's an interesting actor to me, who kind of started off, of course, started off just doing movies with his friends, but then moved into this very kind of heavy period drama part of his career, and now yeah. as he's gotten older, is an action star, which yeah. is an interesting path to take. So, what are your expectations for Born? Um. You know, I mean, I enjoy Matt Damon. Um, I think that he is, um, I don't think that he's on like quite the superstar level of like a Tom Cruise who maybe, like you say, maybe our last remaining um, mm -hmm. superstar of that level. Like I think kind of most other people, even when they're like Brad Pitt or, you know, whatever, are still like a little bit below that superstar level of just like awe in like every country in the world. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that that's... Um, that's something that, you know, Matt Damon kind of like hasn't quite reached that pinnacle of. Uh, but I, you know, I enjoy him. I find him to be highly watchable, um, fun. I think that he, I wish that he had a little bit more of that sparkle that Tom Cruise has. Cause right. I think Tom Cruise does have that ability to, um, he has that charm and he has that ability to really be, um, you know, really lovable, even while he's like kind of doing something crazy. Um, you know, you're, you're still kind of there for him. And I think that Matt Damon hasn't quite gotten there. Like he's still a great action star, but I'm not as emotionally invested in him as I usually am in Tom Cruise as an action star. Um, but, you know, I love them both. And I think that this is going to be 
I hope, um, you know, a return to form. Like, I hope it's going to be, you know, what we enjoyed in those. And I did enjoy those first three. Um, you know, I think that I liked the first one maybe a little better than the others, but I mm. liked all of them. And, um, you know, I worked on Born Ultimatum briefly, so I am a little familiar with the, <laughs> the franchise in that regard. Um, I was a PA on Born Ultimatum when they were shooting in New York. Um, now I'm glad so, I said I liked the last one best. That's good. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I, did, I was there. I watched them crash cars into each other. It was fantastic. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. And and so I definitely, uh, I like all of them. And I think that, um, I think he's going to be great. I think it's going to be another really fun popcorn movie. I don't expect it to be how I feel about this Rogue Nation film. Right. Um, but I could, I could be changed. My mind could be changed on that. Um, you know, I think, I think the thing about Macquarie is that he, as a director is just really, I mean, we talked about it a little bit with the stunts, but he's really visually balletic. And I don't yeah. think that that's necessarily the case with a lot of directors. And so I think that that's something that I may wish for when I watch this. Um, I think that there's sure. a little bit more, I think, grit to the Bournes. And I yeah. think there's a little bit more polish to the uh, Mission Impossibles, at least the one I've seen and the trailers that I've seen. Um, and I like that. You know, I like that it kind of has that polish. And I, I think that uh, I think it'll be interesting. I think the Bourne one will definitely be worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. I think Greengrass definitely has a lot more grit to his yeah. work than Polish. And I, and I think that fits within the kind of born storyline. Yeah. So I think it's a good fit. But I think you hit on something that I didn't realize. Like I'd always like there's something separating me from really liking Matt Damon. And I think you've really hit on it is that in the movies where he's kind of being himself and doing comedies, like things like and Good Will Hunting's not just a comedy, but it just yeah, has comedic moments. And the movies he did with Kevin Smith, you you get this charm. You get yeah. this glimmer, this kind of wink. And when he's yeah. in action, when he's like Matt Damon, action star, all yeah. that is gone. And it's yeah. just like tough guy. And I really wish he could get a little bit of both and just kind yeah. of combine them into a really great performance. But like you, I am really looking forward to this. I'm glad that Paul Greengrass came back and, and is working. Uh, you know, I think Matt Damon is a good choice for that role. But like you said, I don't think it'll quite live up to something like this. I think uh, Rogue Nation is is one of those kind of uh, like not once in a generation, but once every 10 or 15 years type action movie that you're going to look back and be like, that's how you do it. Like this is this is the pinnacle of what action movies can be. And, yeah. you know, it's OK to have a bunch of other action movies that don't reach that. They can still be yeah. fun. And that's kind of what I'm expecting here. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be fun, but um, I don't think it'll reinvent the wheel in any sort of major way. Right. All right. Uh, so before you go, why don't you um, tell people one more time where they can fund No Trace and maybe where they can find you on Twitter? Cool. Um, so, yeah, No Trace is my own action film. Um, and you can find it at GoFundMe.com slash Miranda Directs. And I am on Twitter uh, at Miranda Sajak. And uh, nobody can ever spell that, but hopefully <laughs> it'll be in the text. You know, it'll be in the show notes, I guarantee it. Right, yes. Yeah. So find it in the show notes because uh, you won't be able to spell it otherwise. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Am I loud and clear? Am I breaking up? 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you enjoyed the show, and if you're still listening now, I hope you did, there's a number of ways you can connect with the show or help us out. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at PC Case Study or Facebook or Tumblr or any of those other sites. You can also find other episodes of my show and other great shows on followingfilms.com, shows like Hydrate Level 4 and the True Bromance Film Podcast. But if you really want to go the extra mile and help out the show, go to patreon.com slash study, And there you can actually donate on a per-episode basis. You can get lots of great rewards like getting a shout-out on Twitter or on the show. Or you can even pick the movie that we watch if you, if you donate enough money for a long enough period of time. So lots of good ways to connect, and I hope to talk to you there. Now, the next time you hear my voice, Mike and I will be doing a review of Jason Bourne. So look forward to that. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. I've got some friends, some that I hardly know. But we've had some times I wouldn't trade for the world. We chase these days down with talks of